Hi, everybody. This is Tony Khan, the producer and director of Morning Stories from WGBH in Boston. Years ago in Hawaii, I met a National Parks guard at the World War II Pearl Harbor Memorial. He told me that the night before, he had been to a big official 60th reunion of the sailors and the soldiers who had survived the attack that day from the Japanese, men who are now in their 70s and early 80s. And he told me that he was very moved to see those old veterans there. And then, incredibly shocked, about an hour later, when they started behaving like a bunch of adolescents. Where was their sense of dignity, he thought. I mean, their sense of all the sacrifices that they had made. Well, the wife of one of those veterans noticed the look in his eye. She came over and she said to him, you know, I know what you're thinking. They're acting like a bunch of foolish kids. But you've got to understand, tonight they are The last time they were together like this, they were 17 years old, 18 years old. And for most of them, that was the day that their youth died. They're they're just bringing back what they lost in their hearts. Well, today's morning story is about another young man who never made it back from the war in Korea and about a little girl named Lainey Golan, who in spite of that, never let him go. We call it A Letter to Bob. Dear Bob... It's hard to believe that you couldn't have been more than 18. For years after you left for Korea, I relived saying goodbye to you. You kissed mommy on the cheek, thanking her for all the good meals she'd served you, shook daddy's hands, and gave me a hug. As soon as you started walking away, I climbed down to flame my place in the truck. I realized you thought I'd jump down to chase you, and I went hot and prickly with shame. When you rushed back, my tears mixed with yours, and I became the one who couldn't let go of you. You placed me gently back in the truck bed and reminded me to take care of the kittens. When you turned to wave one last time, I lifted Skipper's paw in a pretend wave before you turned away and the truck picked up speed. When the telegram came, my father read it, handed it to my mother, and walked out the door. Mommy dropped it on the table and pressed her arms into her belly as if she had a stomach ache. She waved me away. I followed Daddy outside. I watched the hard scrubbing he was giving the milking machine and the silent tears dripping off his chin. Years later, I read that telegram. I was on vacation from college, already older than you'd been when you died. It was among piles of old magazines put out in one of our sheds. The Secretary of the Army has asked me to express his deep regret that your friend, Corporal Robert L. Knapp, died of wounds in Korea, 18 February 1951. Edward F. Witzel, Major General, USA. When you left for Korea, i just turned five when I cried that I wanted my big brother back. Daddy explained that you'd just been working on our family farm in exchange for room and board and were not really my brother. 
For the next 30 years or so, I kept that telegram in my treasures box, and in the end, it became the evidence we needed to prove that you'd listed us as your next of kin, part of our family, that you deserved a place on the Township Monument. Nine years ago today, your name was finally engraved on that monument, and the mayor named November 11, 1998, Robert L. Knapp Day, in your honor. Later on, I found the rest of your original family. Your little brother, Johnny, followed you to Korea, but he returned to attend college on the GI Bill and became a teacher. Both he and your sister, Mary, are doing well and have named children and grandchildren after you. When I looked around at all the people who honored you at the unveiling of the monument that day, some were smiling, some were crying, and some, like me, were doing both. Love always from your sister, Lainey. Charles, hi, it's Tony. Good morning, Tony. It's great to hear your voice. Everything okay? <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? Charles Elias was a Marine medic who served in Iraq. Many of you may have heard the letter that he wrote to us a couple of years ago from the front in Iraq. Many of you have also written to ask how he's doing. What was the date of your return to the United States? About April the 20th, 2005. And when would you say you really felt that you had come back home? Well, I think it probably took several months before it all sunk in that, you know, I was back and I was safe. And initially, you're kind of in this shock. Mm. You don't really know what hit you. I mean, it's a kind of a mixed bag of emotions. The military tried to prepare you as best as they can. So you're kind of a fish out of water. Not having any of your gear, for example, that was just weird. I felt like I was naked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not having my weapon, you know, just, you know, because it was just like a part of my body. Simple things like that. And just being alone was just like the weirdest thing. Really? Yeah, because I was never alone. I mean, you, you were with uh, many, many other people, you know. And in and, and silence, peace, about no noise, things that just a lot different. Just being on your own, that was kind of weird. Even things like driving, you know, I mean, because there were designated marine drivers that would drive the, the Hummers, and uh, we would have a uh, machine gun in our vehicle, and they were driving all over the road, just to step back into a regular car and just know that there were actually traffic laws and to just kind of some of the vivid images I have in my head about what happened during my stay out there. Have you shared many of those images? Um, you know, American citizen who has never been in a situation like this wouldn't really know how to respond, even, you know, if you told them the truth. 
also, I probably, in some ways, sugar-coated some of the things that, you know, went on for me out there. We don't quite know what to say to you guys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. People don't know what to say. I mean, they don't know what the right thing to say is. They feel uncomfortable. You know, that. I mean, what do you say? What I move to say to you, Charles, is that I'm sorry for whatever you had to go through. Well, you know, I don't think you should be sorry. I mean, I'm not sorry. I mean, I, I, you know, did what I was trained to do, and, you know, I know I did the best I could do, mm-hmm. and... You know, when I was working in the community here in the United States, I was a crisis worker. You know, car accidents, uh, accidents out in the wilderness, and people were lost or uh, people would lose their lives. So when I went out to Iraq, in some ways, you know, I was fairly well equipped. You know, a lot of the Marines that I was working alongside, 18, 19, 20, just kids, because of my my training and my... I was often called upon to deal with crisis situations or debrief when there had been a traumatic incident. We dealt with Iraqis a lot, a lot of civilians, you know, provide some basic medical care to some of the locals who maybe hadn't seen a doctor for many, many years. I'd like to think that it was worthwhile in the big picture. I know I did everything I could Thankfully, I made it back in one piece. I have a marine memorial very close to my house, and, you know, I drive past there, and, you know, and immediately I think of all the men who have, who have given up their lives, and, you know, I, you know, is it all worth it? Well, of course, one would like to think that it's all worth it. Charles, thanks a lot. No, you're very welcome, Tony. It's great to talk to you again, and you know, hopefully we can stay in touch. I'm back here in the studio with uh, Gary Mott. Charles was seemingly pretty well prepared for going to Iraq with his training as a social worker. And it's remarkable to hear him say just how long it takes to reintegrate yourself in quote-unquote normal society. I knew Charles before he went to war, and it's a different Charles. How different? How has he changed? I guess the answer that I sense is still is still in his silences. It's in the things that he's not quite sure that anybody else can understand. Mm. That kind of challenges me on one level because I believe that the only way another person can understand is if they do hear your story. The day-to-day mm-hmm. events on the front lines of a, mm-hmm. a battle like that in Iraq, how can that not change you or make a permanent imprint on your your being, your soul. I'm also struck by the fact that he went there as a medic and he served there as a medic, and yet one of the things that he says he really misses when he comes back is having his weapon. Mm. That, to me, leaves so much unsaid. Like most of the stories that we're lucky enough to get, I could listen to this one a bunch of times and still hear something new in it. Mm-hmm. I, I hope other people feel the same way. There are some changes coming up for Morning Stories we wanted to uh, tell you about. We have been looking for a co-sponsor, and uh, we have gotten it, NPR. That means that at the beginning of our show, and then at the end of the show, which you'll hear, this is an NPR program brought to you by, and then they have one of their donors. But Morning Stories is going to be the same as ever right there after the announcement. So it's a morning story sandwich. With crusty NPR bread. Still flavorful, 
still nutritional morning stories. Heart safe. Definitely heart safe. <laughs> WGBH.org slash morning stories. Ooh, and so, don't forget Flickr. We've got a couple new pictures that we posted recently on Flickr. You know, interesting people, interesting places, great stories. Make sure you stay with us. We'll be back soon.